morning, brethren, we're back in 2 Peter, and I want you to turn to chapter 2, and we are going to be looking, actually this morning, I'm probably just going to be looking at just several verses, verse uh, 14 through uh, 16 of chapter 2. So take your Bibles and have your Bibles ready uh, this morning, because we're also going to be in in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 22. So be ready to go back to Numbers. Remember Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So it's in the beginning of your Bible. And I want to look at uh, those Old Testament texts. I'll be reading a lot of Old Testament passages this morning. So be ready and uh, be ready to look at the Word of God and um, look it up for yourself and read it with your own eyes. All right, so this morning let us look at chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. And it says this. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute Donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, again, as we look at your word, open it to us, help us to understand it, and then put the principles into practice in our daily life. Make us Christians who are discerning and know what's going on, especially by way of what's being taught today. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we have been considering the character and conduct found in false teachers and have been given an illustrative picture of who they really are. The Apostle Peter, having dealt at length with false teachers, has still more to say which reminds us that false teachers and their teachings are far, a far greater and a deeper problem than we often realize. It shows how horrible God considers false teachers to be, that these scriptures before us serve as a severe warning to every person who would dare to deny Christ and the teachings of God's Word. Just think of it for a moment. Peter is writing this right before he dies. So he thought this subject was to be dealt with at length before he departed. Jude, you read Jude, Jude was going to write on something completely different, stops and realizes that he needs to write on false teachers more than anything else. And then... Paul told the Ephesian church when he was leaving them, listen, I'm leaving, but beware, false teachers are going to come right from your own midst and from the outside too. So beware of those. You wonder like, wait wait a minute, is, is it really that much of a danger? Well, if you look at scripture, you have to conclude, yes, it is. No matter who the teacher is, no matter how smooth and charismatic, no matter how fluent and great an orator, no matter how creative and sharp a thinker, no matter how authoritative in presence, 
no matter how well-liked and appreciated, no matter how popular and well-known, if he or she denies the lordship of Christ in their teaching and lifestyle, if he or she regularly mishandles and twists the word of God, then he or she is a false teacher. They must be immediately abandoned and exposed. You cannot let them into your mind because they have teaching that is destructive to the forward progress and movement of a Christian who wants to obey the Lord and live a life of godliness and holiness. So we noticed, we already saw in Scripture in the few messages that we have looked at, the, we glimpsed into God's sovereignty, and that is that the Lord knows how to reserve the unjust for the day of judgment and to punish them, and of course the Lord will deal with sin and the ungodly justly and fairly and righteously. So false teachers will be judged. And also false teachers will go apostate and will be destroyed, for it already told us in Scripture in chapter 2, verse 12, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. And then in verse 13, suffering wrong as the wages of wrongdoing. They will receive a full payback for the wrong they have done. This is the reward they earned, God's justice. In the end, at the end of verse 14, it says that they're accursed children. And I ended last time saying this is a Hebraism and used all over the word of God to describe people that have gone astray, children of destruction, children of wrongdoing, children of wrath, children of disobedience. Now we come to verse number 15. And we have to ask this question, why are false teachers destroyed? For the rest of chapter 2, the Apostle Peter wants us to gain a clear description of false teachers so that God's children can quickly identify them, dismiss their teaching, and not follow their way. The character and conduct of false teachers are exposed here in this section of Scripture. So we have been discerning the propensities found in the character and conduct of false teachers. We've already looked at the first one, that false teachers have a propensity of being prideful. Secondly, that false teachers have a propensity of being unteachable. Thirdly, false teachers have a propensity of being controlled by unblemishing lusts. And then this morning we want to look at a fourth propensity, and that is false teachers have a propensity to leave the right way for the wrong way. Notice in verse 15, chapter 2, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, following the way of Balaam. So this passage of Scripture is narrowly revealing to us that there is a right way and there is a wrong way in which you can go in life. The term the way is used all over Scripture. The way is really the pattern or the road, the path, 
one chooses as they move through life. In this case, the false teachers knew the right way to live, yet forsook it for another way. The apostate's wandering was not due to a disorientation or a getting lost, but rather a willful turning away, a willful apostasy from God and a rebellion against his lordship. These good-for-nothings don't live according to conscience guided by right and wrong or truth and morality or holiness and godliness, as Paul told Timothy in Timothy chapter 4, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, from the faith, the faith, the body of truth delivered to the saints, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. It was Yogi Berra, a baseball player and a coach, who said, who was often famous for pithy sayings, and he said one time, when you come to a Y in a road, take it. What this is assuming is you can't stay at the Y in the road. There is really no neutral position or choice. You are either going to take one way or the other way. You are going to either take the right way or the wrong way. The false teacher started on the right way but forsook it. They couldn't stay neutral, though. They had to take another way. In this case, they took an an other way, the old way, the world's way, the wrong way, the way of the flesh. The charges against these false teachers is that they once knew better than to do what they're doing. They are not acting in ignorance. They have left the straight way and wandered off course deliberately. The wisdom literature of Proverbs addresses the issue of those who leave the straight and upright path of wisdom for another path that turns out to be a crooked path. If you, if you turn there for just one second in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 11 through verse 17, you will find that This is wisdom given to often young people that are going to be working in the kingdom of the king. And so the king wants wise people in his kingdom. So that's what really Proverbs is about. It's about teaching young people what it means to be wise. So they steer away from being foolish and being naive and ultimately from being a scoffer. So look what it says here in Proverbs 2, verse 11. It says this, discretion will guard you, understanding will watch over you, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of righteousness to walk in the way of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. See, that is is something we need to be aware of. 
that all people who are speaking and claiming to speak truth are not people that are always in their heart and in their motive leading or desiring to lead people on the straight path, but actually on the crooked path. These false teachers leave the right way, the way of life, the way of a life following Jesus, the way of the apostolic doctrine delivered to the church. They and those who follow them depart from this and start following something they start following someone they cannot stay neutral they must do something else like following cleverly uh, clever devised fables like peter already said or by following destructive heresies they're not of course labeled that but that's what it ends up being or following sensuality or a desire for greed and money and possessions and power, for boastful pride, for self-will. See, they have to follow some way. And so in Peter, it says in verse 15, if you notice, the last thing, having followed, they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, son of Peor, who loved the wages of of unrighteousness. Now I want to look at that from the Old Testament because Peter is pulling from the Old Testament and take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 22. Now this is an illustration in the Old Testament, an example of Balaam, a prophet Balaam, who was a considered a Gentile prophet, and it's examining his way of thinking and his motive for living. Now, King Balak, give you some background, was, a, was a, of Moab. Was, he was a Moabite king. He was part of a, an anti-Israeli coalition. Now, the Moabites, if you remember, were descendants of Lot. Remember Abraham, his nephew was Lot, right? Well, the Moabites are descendants from Lot. Now, it appeared that they have been spared by Israel and by the Lord up until this point. But they fell into hedonism. They fell into spiritual bankruptcy because of idolatry. They ended up worshiping the gods of Chemosh and the gods of Baal. And they, of course, came to the point where they couldn't even... uh, They found out their gods were not as helpful and potent as they wanted them to be. So King Balak became afraid of Israel and her God. And he heard what the Israelites had done to the Amorites. Now, they also heard that the Israelites took care of them in such a way that they annihilated their whole group of people. It tells us in the Word of God, in Numbers, before I look at the passage I gave you in Numbers 22, verse 1, it says, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands and all his people, and 
his land, and you shall do to them as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. So they killed him and his sons and all his people until there was no remnant left, and they possessed his land. They annihilated everybody. There was no next generation. They were done. So with that information, then I want you to look at Numbers chapter 22, verse 1 through 4. It says, Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, and they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. Now, there's the situation. Israel is camping outside their territory, and they realize all the history of what happened to the nations who try to go up against Israel. So Balak says, I'm not going to go up against them with my army. I have to find another way to do it. So the book of Numbers chronicles a new method of seeking to destroy the children of Israel. The method for destruction was not a formal attack against Israel. It was an attack from within. Balaam was the only Gentile prophet or soothsayer who seemed to be a friend of Israel. Balaam had been following the history of Israel and their God, and we see his knowledge of what God did with Israel against other people in the three oracles of Balaam later on in the book of Numbers. But Balaam had an underlying motive for his craft. He was seduced in part by the love of money. Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. That's what Peter says. Balaam took the way of his own sinful heart and his own habitual sin. And then notice in verse 7 of Numbers 22, so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed, and notice what they depart with. They depart to go talk to Balaam with fees of divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. Okay, now remember, Balak is the king of Moab, right? He doesn't want to fight against Israel. Balaam is the prophet that they're seeking out to hire with money. All right? And so they have in their hand the payment of divination. They're going to pay him for doing something for them. Balaam was the best at his craft in the region, the craft of sorcery. And because he was the best, he can pretty much name his fees, whatever he wanted, because he was so good. Ultimately, Balaam wanted gold more than God, and he wanted to serve the king of Balak and do what he says. 
Now, the narrative is unusual because Balaam's heart was bent on silver and gold, but at the same time, there is there was a sort of reverence for God that comes out of Balaam. Matter of fact, you see Balaam in Scripture saying a lot of things that are true that are coming from God through him. So he has a reverence for God. At the same time, he has a motive in his heart for gold, for possessions, for money. And so he has an appearance of religiousness to cover his covetous practices. Now, that's exactly what false teachers do. It doesn't mean that they don't use the Bible or truth in Scripture. They just have an underlying motive on why they're doing it or why they're teaching it. And we can't always see the motive. But we sure can be discerning enough to know how God works to be able to pick false teachers out when they begin to teach and spew and write books and be on TV and the Internet and blogging and all those things. In fact, Jude, which is the next book after Second Peter, says the same thing as Peter says. He says, for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. And then Peter says, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Peor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So it's very clear in Scripture, everywhere you look, you find the motive of Balaam given. But when you read numbers, you can't always pick it out unless you see the details. So let's go back to numbers, and I want you to notice in chapter 22, verse 8 through 13, King Balak, king of Moab, wanted to hire Balaam, the prophet, to do something for him. Balak sent messengers to summon Balaam to put a curse on the children of Israel. And so King Balak knew that Balaam was a well-known prophet. In fact, Balaam was a dreaded wizard, a conjurer, and some think that he was associated with the school of diviners described in the Mari letters as uh, R.K. Harrison noted in his book. But look at verse number 6 of Numbers 22. It says, Now therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me, perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. See, now that's why they hired him, because they heard that this Balaam, this prophet, this soothsayer, whatever he said, and when he cursed people, they were really cursed. And when he blessed people, they were really blessed. And he became famous because of that. So nighttime was the best time for diviners to consult with their gods. Now, Balaam knew that the God of Israel was the mighty God. He's been following and chronicling his mighty deeds, so Balaam does first defer to God's counsel. 
he wants actually to cash in big time with this deal with Balak. But God keeps telling him, no, you can't do what Balak wants you to do. And so if you look at verse number 13 of Numbers 22, it says, So Balaam rose in the morning and said to, to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. All right, so you would think that would be over, it's done, what God says is final, right? And well, that's actually true. But here, Balak, the king, wasn't going to be satisfied with that. So what does he do? He sends another delegation to Balaam. But this time, a bigger delegation with more money. All right, notice in verse number 14 through verse number 19, let me just say that King Balak raises the ante here in this passage. A larger, more impressive entourage comes, and the promise to Balaam is, if you curse these people, we'll grease your palm very handsomely. Right? We'll put a lot of uh, moolah in your hands. Look at what it says in verse number 15. Then Balak said, Balak again sent leaders more numerous, more distinguished than the former. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak to the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me, for I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come, curse this people for me. So we would not take this method in our part of the world. Uh, but they didn't want to go to war. But in the Middle Eastern part of the world, hiring someone to curse someone was very common. Uh, this mystical way of thinking about life was very common in their thinking. So this was not a new method, but uh, maybe this is more prominent in this narrative here. But it was one that was used by kings to come against their enemy and put fear in the enemy's heart. Now, what does Balaam tell the king? What does Balaam tell King Balak's officials? Look at verse number 18. It says, Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, through Balak we, through, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either, either small or great, contrary to the command the Lord, of the Lord my God, now, please, you also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, you shall do. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. All right, so that's what's going on here. Uh, so this great offer of wealth caused Balaam to consult God again, hoping that God would change his mind. Everyone has, has a price, and maybe the price was Balaam wanted to cash in on this deal. And so Balaam presumes on God's character, hoping that he will have some flexibility with him and maybe allow him to curse the people. Now, why did God tell him to accompany the envoys of King Balak then? God let him go, 
but God was angry because he went. Why was God angry? Because Balaam's covetousness overmastered him. That was the driving force on why he was going. He wanted to curse Israel so he can get money. Look what it says again in verse 22. But God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. So, in other words, Balaam was carnally motivated, so it infuriated the Lord and moved him to offer a most unusual warning to the prodigal prophet. The angel of the Lord in our text is seen to be a Christophany in Scripture. Christ shows up in the Old Testament from time to time, and usually it's designated by the title angel of the Lord. Now, the donkey, it says in our text, saw the angel of the Lord, but the prophet did not see the angel of the Lord. Now, why didn't he see him? Because he was blinded by greed and covetousness. In verse 23, it says, When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field, but Balaam struck the donkey to turn him back in the way. So he beat him once because the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, but he didn't see them. So the, the donkey tried to veer off path. He says, get back on the path. And so he beat him. The drawn sword speaks of the wrath of God. The Lord is graciously actually ensuing, issuing a solemn warning to the prophet who is now eager for financial gain and cannot see the angel of the Lord. In verse number 24, then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. And then in verse 26, the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam, and Balaam was angry and struck down the donkey with a stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I even been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, No. Then look at verse 31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary, because your way was contrary to me. Now there it is. There is where Peter is drawing from 
where he's talking about they left the way. Your way is contrary to me. It's the Hebrew word derek here. It, it's, it's like the word way is like when you see a snake. A snake has a certain way on a rock, right? Uh, a ship has a certain way in the ocean. A, uh, a man dating a woman has a certain way about him. So in this case, God is revealing the real motive of Balaam's heart to go curse Israel so he can get paid. And God exposes it through this story here. And the Lord says to Balaam, I am against you. Balaam, you are supposed to be representing me. At least that's what you started out to do. But your way of behavior and conduct are opposite to my ways. Your path is a reckless one before me. So Balaam was rebuked for his sinful lifestyle, and God chose to use a dumb animal, a donkey. It's quite ironic. It shows that those who live in sin live like a dumb animal, and those who teach false doctrine are equated to dumb animals. Here the donkey is presented as wiser than a human being. As being rational and clear. The human being created in the image of God is viewed as being blind and ignorant. So Balaam has chose to live an insane lifestyle. Let me use the right words, but the motive in my heart is not what God wants. It's what I want. That's a false teacher. In fact, that's why Peter says in his text that the donkey who, what, what did he do? He restrained the prophet's madness. He was mad in the sense he was living a life of insanity because it was a life of selfishness, and it was a life, no matter what he did, was to just get money. A lifestyle that satisfied the sinful flesh while rejecting or even reinterpreting all the sound counsel and wisdom of the Lord. So what did this mean for the children of Israel who were standing on the threshold of the promised land? They've come through the desert. They're ready to go into the promised land. And so this event happens. Well, it, it was intended to encourage the children of Israel to put blessings instead of curses in the mouth of the prophet. It also bolsters up what Peter was saying, that God knows how to rescue his people. Numbers tells us that no enchantment is going to come against Jacob. No divination is going to come against Israel. Because God is their rescuer. He's their protector. He's the one who says, those who curse you, I will curse. And those who bless you, I will bless. That's still in play. In fact, Moses was not unaware of this situation when he wrote this about Balaam. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord loves you. That's what he said to his people Israel in this situation. So, But Balak, uh, the king Balak still wanted to go on. He wanted to curse Israel. 
so Balak schemed to get Balaam to curse God's people, but as have we as we have seen, Balaam could not curse what God has already blessed. In fact, if you look over the Numbers chapter 24, just turn quickly over there. Look at verse 13, 11 through 13. For it says this, then Balak, Numbers 24, verse 11, then Balak, Balak's anger burned against Balaam, and he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Why did he bless, why did he bless them? Because God wouldn't let him curse them. And that's what him meeting there with his donkey on that road meant that he wanted to go his own way. And God says, no, I'm against you. You can't go your own way. You can go only the way I direct you to go. So Balaam did not get payment for his job assignment. He didn't get any payola at all. In the end of the whole ordeal, Balaam ends up giving a series of three oracles of judgment concerning what happens to the foes of God's people Israel. If you come against my people, something will happen. In fact, in those oracles of Balaam, he says that God gave Israel victory over Egypt. He said that God made them superior over King Agag. He said also that there's going to be a sad destiny to the Moabites. In fact, the Moabites are going to be crushed in their forehead. He said that the destiny of Edom will end. The fate of the Canaanites in the hands of the Assyrians, Israel will have the upper hand, and the end of Assyrian domination will come. So why did God protect the nation of Israel? Because God chose them. All Of all the nations of the world, he chose them. Not because they were great in number, not because they were mighty, not because they were righteous people. Actually, they were stiff-necked people. However, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 32.10, they were the apple of God's eye. They were God's chosen people. So where did all this lead? Well, if you look in Numbers, if you're still there, turn to chapter 31, because where... Did it lead? It led, Balaam's covetousness led to sexual immorality, which led to idolatry, and then further led to judgment. Verse 30, chapter 31, verse number 8, notice what it says. They killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zor, Her, Reba, and the five kings of Midian, they also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. So where did it lead him? It led him to his own death. And then notice in verse 14 through 16 of Numbers 31, Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds who had come from service in the war. And Moses said to them, have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor 
So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. So, in other words, Balaam was teaching Balak how to actually get Israel. I can't curse him, but I tell you how to get them. Get your women to have sexual relationships with the Israelite men. And then what's going to happen is that you're going to destroy the uniqueness of Israel and the purity of Israel. And then that will lead to idolatry that will God will not be the only true God. Now you'll have a multitude of gods, and that will lead ultimately to judgment. So that's how you get them. Did that happen? Well, if you notice in the passage of Scripture that was read this morning by Caliph, that's exactly what took place. Now what happened is that the men did start procreating or having sexual relationships with the woman of Moab and Midian, and they began to start thinking, well, there's really no problem with this. This seems to be all right. Everybody seems to be doing it, but God was very angry. If you look in Numbers 25, verse number it says, the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. Verse 5, so Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And then verse number 9, those who died by the plague were 24,000 Israelis died by the plague. So, was it working? Yes, it was working, but God put a stop to it, and he warned them again. He warned them that you were tricked, and you didn't see it. Look down at verse number 16 of Numbers chapter 25. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Be hostile to the Midianites and strike them for they have been hostile to you with their tricks with which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor and in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. See, this is what's going on. This is how you get Israel. So Balaam taught Balak how to do that, even though Balaam himself could not bring a curse upon Israel because God had blessed him. So Balaam's name became a synonym of all these sins, of greed, of immorality, of idolatry, and ultimately of presumption, which caused God's people to be led away from the straight path into all kinds of sinful behavior. If you go, if you remember back in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, when it was talking about, I think it was the church of Ephesus, I'm, uh, I believe that was in Revelation 2.14, it says this, but I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak 
to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So see, the sin of greed leads to all kinds of other sins. The motive of someone's heart to say on the outside that they're a Christian and know how to do all, you know, the lingo and the words and how to act, but in their heart, they really are not a Christian. They really don't want what God wants in their life. They want what they want. They want because they think God wants me to be happy. So anything I need to do to be happy, I'm sure that pleases God. So they begin to rationalize in their own mind, and that's what the would happen back then, but it leads to all kinds of things. See, you, there's a straight way, there's a narrow way, and Christians need to stay on that narrow way, but there is a broad way. There is an other way. There is a selfish way, and that's all on the broad road. And see, we have to determine when somebody comes in front of you to teach, what road are they on, and what road are you on? So here's the point that Balaam is an example of a false teacher who became worldly and led God's people into sin and destruction, and they do the same thing today. There's no difference. All false teachers who deny the lordship of Christ become worldly by seeking possessions and money and popularity and success and acceptance and security that the world can give them, forsaking the right way for the, to, and go astray to the wrong way. There's no neutral way. There's no straddling the fence. You're either on the narrow path, the straight path, the right way, or the wrong way. That's it. And it leads people into sin, and it leads people to destruction. So most false teachers today, just like in Peter's day, allow greed and selfishness to rule them. That is the motive of their heart. And what is their basic message? I've been saying this all along. God will give you healing and wealth and other material blessings in return for money. And vice versa. But this is where it starts. That's not where it ends. It just gets worse as it goes along. Because they end up holding the Bible up and say, I believe it but then they never open up the Bible to really preach it and to actually live it. See, that's quite different, and you have to look at their life. So the true gospel just doesn't sell like a modified message, a message dressed up with an appeal to the base desires of the sinful nature. The Word of God, when it's preached, it goes against your sinful nature. It goes against your past life. It goes against what you thought about God. And it replaces, of what, it replaces it with truth. What, how to live godly. How to live holy. How to live for God. How to deal with your sin. How to deal with relationships. That's why Peter says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Peor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, 
for a mute donkey speaking with a voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. And before God, that kind of living is madness. And it's, it's simply this, saying and showing that you believe God when in your heart you don't. Showing outwardly you want to do the right thing and in your heart you don't. And God sees the heart. He sees the heart. So there are several admonitions I could throw out to you as I close this morning. The first one is this. Persevere to make every effort to participate in the divine nature as Peter has been teaching in order to demonstrate the genuine nature of your faith. And that means by observable an observable display of the qualities of the divine nature that you see in your own life and other people see as you grow in Christ. And why do you do that? So you make your salvation sure and your Christian walk becomes stable. And no matter what happens in the world, no matter what, where our country goes, that has not changed one iota to the plan of God and what God's doing. His plan will go forward, and his plan for the church is to preach the gospel and to be clear on it and to live the gospel, to adorn the gospel with your life. That's what we ought to be doing, and when we do that, God grows us by the word of God to be Christ-like. Secondly, don't be naive to think that you can't be influenced by false teachers. They are, their influence is everywhere. It's in bookstores. Matter of fact, they are the most popular books that are being sold today. And people are eating them up by the thousands, and people are reading them, but they're basically motivational books filled with psychology. Scripture here and there that's baptized in psychology. And... Um, and people are eating them up. Don't be deceived to think that you cannot be influenced by them, or you, maybe you haven't read a book by them already. Pride and greed are clear marks of a false teacher. So true teachers should stand out clearly in stark contrast to false teachers. Now, just, just in Second Peter, a false teacher indulges the flesh. A true teacher has their flesh under control. A false teacher despises authority. A true teacher is willing to submit to authority. A false teacher is a daring and self-willed person and revile authority. A true teacher, they are humble and teachable and reverent and speak good of others. A false teacher are unrestrained by lack of knowledge and are unhindered by ignorance. A true teacher are restrained, not exploiting others, do not exhibit, exhibit their own knowledge. A false teacher, they're involved with reveling and partying and carousing. A true teacher, they are self-controlled and disciplined. A false teacher are those who look out for opportunities to sin. They are trained in greed. True teachers look out for opportunities to do good. 
they are trained in generosity. A false teacher, they go astray. A true teacher follows the way of righteousness and does not divert from it. A true teacher, a false teacher, promises blessing but is unable to deliver blessing. A true teacher is fruitful and a source of blessing to others, and most likely because they just teach God's word as written. That's where the blessing comes from. So true, true teachers model godly character, and as a result, they become a source of blessing to all kinds of people. And so you could be that person, a source of blessing to other people. And I think that there's another admonition that I'd like to share, that if you are going to take up the word of God and teach it, Remember this, there is a stricter judgment on teachers. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. That's a frightening passage of Scripture to anybody who's going to take up the Word of God and to teach it to somebody else. It is, it is for one for me. And it's a motivation for me, too, to don't steer off the path. Preach it if the people don't like it. Keep preaching it if the people don't like it. Until you have the people who want it. And then 2 Timothy 2.15 is an admonition to us. Do your best to present yourself to God an approved workman who has no need to be ashamed. Why aren't they ashamed? They rightly handle the word of truth, right? It takes a, a lot of work, a lot of uh, putting yourself into it to study the word of God to unfold it. And you never, you never let up and never give up. You just keep going. It's hard work, but it's profitable work. So I just pray that you this morning would be discerning, growing in discernment by knowing the Word of God, so when you are confronted, if you read something, if you read a blog, if you are reading a book, if you're talking to somebody, you can immediately pick up these ling this lingo that shows that they don't understand the Scripture. There's something wrong with what they understand and then what they say and then usually how they live too. You have to look at character and conduct. You can't always read motive but you'll find the motive somewhere in there later on. So I pray that you and myself would continue to stay close to the Word of God. Let's not veer off, right? And it's not a popular book. It's the most sold book in the world every year, but it's not popular. Because as soon as you start opening it up and reading it and studying it, it says, woe is me. I need to get right. I need to be able to please God and know how to do that. So let's pray. Lord, this morning I thank you again for your people. I thank you, Lord, for the word of God. It is, it is so, it exposes our hearts so, so clearly. We can't, when it does, Lord, I pray that we not run from you, but we'd be like David, we run to you with our sin. And when we run to you, Lord, we know that you're faithful and just as we confess our sin to Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, make us faithful 
concerning the word of God, make us persistent, give us perseverance in our heart, not to step back, to look back to the old life, but just continue to go forward. And we know in doing that, you will maintain our peace and joy, and we will receive blessing in our souls. And the hope of eternal life will become much clearer and much more able to see. And I pray this this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.